Hello, hello, listeners to the Third Way podcast. Um, one of the things that is um, an essential part of the mission behind the Third Way is to bring courageous people to the forefront and give them a little bit of a platform to spread their word and the work that they're doing. And a few months ago, I came across the feed of Ari Hanavar, who I'll, um, I, and I reached out to her. I was so impressed by what she does. And let me give you a little bit of intro and then, and then you get to meet Ari. And then we're going to have a great conversation about authoritarian theology. So Ari is a award-winning writer, visual artist, and speaker. And she has a special emphasis on using poetry and music as bridges across war-torn and conflict-ridden borders. She is the Iranian musical ambassador of peace as well. Uh, and so like a lot of the guests I have on, Ari is a bridge builder, but not at the compromising of her values. And I, that's what I find to be so courageous uh, about what you're doing. So welcome, Ari. Welcome to The Third Way. I'm so looking forward to our conversation, Justin. Thank you so much. So share a little bit about, as you feel, um, what feels safe and right for you, a little bit about your background, how did, how you arrived here, and then we'll kick it off with the questions. Yeah, so I was fortunate enough to be born and raised in the majestic city of Shiraz that's located in Iran, very near Persopolis and the cradle of civilization. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's also dubbed the um, city of poets and wine. But because joy and suffering are inextricably linked in this realm, my world turned upside down when I was six. I lost the right to sing or dance in public or ride my bicycle. This was because of post-revolution Iran, where the uh, Islamists had taken over the government. It was a power grab of the revolution by the people, by a minority few. And what happened is that they... um, basically took control and decided that they wanted to crack down on civil liberties and uh, make sure that women's rights were cut in half. And uh, and I almost mean that literally because a woman uh, under the strict interpretation of their Sharia law, a woman's uh, testimony equaled or two men's Two women's testimony called the man's. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, the wealth that they needed a, a man to allow them to leave the country. Uh, we had to be chaperoned as girls. We couldn't just be free. I uh, really missed playing with my best friend who was a boy. And we couldn't be seen in public together. Mm. So that's the background. And then just as this war on women was becoming our new normal, Saddam Hussein attacked Iran and started a war that lasted eight years Mm -hmm. and destroyed countless lives on both sides. So we were being attacked from the outside and we were being attacked by our own government like an autoimmune disease. Mm. And this attack on our own people hurt in a different way. It was an attack on our personal freedoms. It was an attack on on joy, on bright colors, on anything that would uh, be 
freeing and and bring you pleasure mm -hmm. in uh, in public wow yeah i i mean i grew up i'm a gringo i grew up and i'm i'm a white straight i don't christian ish white man and american and i'm very grateful to be um have the influence of my grandmother um who was she wouldn't refer to herself as a feminist but she was certainly about equality and voice and um, and a strong mother as well, especially considering her very dark background. And one of the things that when I met my partner, Virginia, who grew up in Nicaragua, she said, um, I, we were talking about feminism in the United States. And I, you know, I, and she's pointed this out and I'll never forget it. She said, um, I, she says the United States women are fighting for the right, uh, for equal wage and maybe the right to choose, uh, you know, the right to choice related to um, what their body and their health care. Uh, she says the, in much of the rest of the world, uh, women are fighting for the right to live. Mm. And that was mm -hmm. such a stark thing. And I think that's why I was drawn to the work that you're doing. I meant to mention that you're the author of the book uh, of a novel um, called uh, Ru um, A Girl Named Rumi. Is that correct? Did I say that right? A girl called Rumi. Yes. A girl called Rumi. Thank you. Sorry. And then also this other project you have of uh, drop bombs, drop poems, not bombs, which is sending musical love letters from American musicians to the people of Iran. Oh. And I find it remarkable too. And Virginia is in a similar place in her role with uh, the Central American Women's Fund. Is that you did not you, your your life's work since leaving Iran is not to just Americanize and distance yourself is that you are still this is still something that is obviously very a deep conviction of yours to be a voice for uh, women oppressed women but also just a voice for any people that are not that have been oppressed by by authoritarian theologies in particular and yeah. I, I find that remarkable that you just you know there's a lot of people that can just walk away and like hey I live here now and life is good that's my past but you're doing something about it. And I think that's, uh, that is the def definition of an activist. So. And it is, it is my calling. You, you can change your profession, but you can't really change your calling because um, that's, that's what makes you, you. And, uh, and I'm, I love this term, uh, which is um, rehumanization. Yes. But, a reparative rehumanization. And I work with a lot of refugee populations who have been dehumanized. Right. And that act of restoration and, and, and restoring their dignity, their sense of uh, humanity and and a welcoming bringing in a welcoming energy to them is is one of my my goals in America too. Yeah. And I think the the role of art both as a tool of subversion and a tool of healing is, is ancient. It's an ancient, ancient tool for both healing and subversion. Um, and um, so that's, that's, that really fits into something that, or fits nicely or fits right into this whole idea of listening to your calling and creating something with it. Um, so the, the, the topic um is authoritarian theology. And the, the reason I I reached out to you about this particular topic is that you have a different perspective in that the authoritarian theology that you experienced was from a, a different religion um, and a different country than the authoritarian theology we experience here. Um, I am a former Republican. I'm a former right-wing Christian. Mm -hmm. um, 
I had, um, I began to leave that ideology many years ago and, and, be, but only in the last decade have become very vocal about how, how dangerous, um, militant Christianity is, or what they call Christian nationalism. I saw something the other day that it was a quote that said, uh, your child, if, if you take your child to a drag show, the greatest danger is that a Christian will show up with a gun. Mm-hmm. And that's mm-hmm. horrifically true. And, mm-hmm. Um, so speaking to that idea of like authoritarian theologies or what I call church state, state churches, um, kind of like what the Catholic church was with the, um, a Spanish government as an example that led to the oppression of indigenous people or, um, or you see this with Islam as well. So the first question I have for you, Ari, is why, why do institutions, these, the, you know, the, the, the mechanisms that run things like government, education, religion, religion, why do they fear the mystical so much? <laughs> That's a great question. And uh, predictably, it all comes down to control. <laughs> uh, institutions that include government, education, and um, etc. They're traditionally run by men of a certain status and demographic, And uh, what I really suspect is that they have a sense of entitlement to power because they're unable to fully partake of the pleasure and joys that they should be entitled to. We all should be unapologetically entitled to our own bodily autonomy and having the freedom of thought and our own pleasure and joy. That's the basis for healthy relationships. And that and by relationships, I mean a relationship with ourselves, with each other, with the planet, with the divine. If we're truly entitled and partake of these things and uh, have healthy relationships, then we don't have much interest in dominating others, controlling others. We're satisfied, we're satiated. Mysticism, is a path to cultivating intimate and healthy relationships. Mm-hmm. For the mystic, for example, prayer, we're talking about uh, theology, prayer is the lovers whispering to the beloved, mm-hmm. to the divine. Mindfulness for the mystic is pouring love into whatever is happening, whatever she comes across within and without. There is no striving to be uh, the observer or detached. It's so intimate. You're right there in the muck with whatever is happening. So it's very relational and not transactional. It's as intimate, central, playful, and receptive as you can get. And and it has no interest in controlling others or even one's own states, you know, one's own states of being all are welcome now institutions prefer they prefer transactions things that they can control they love numbers they love qualification quantification Mm -hmm. Uh, so you're religious go do your 100 hail marys or if Mm -hmm. you're muslim 100 salavats uh, go through the motions if you're a country what's your gdp if you're an, an educator what is your standardized test number Whereas mysticism is like valuing their relationship and qualities over numbers and quantities. Uh, it has no interest in control. And I love this, this, uh, this Rumi poem. 
um, this verse that just um, came about how uh, it's, I'll say it in Farsi, it says, ما پرسید, ما پرسید زهوال حقیقت که ما باد پرستیم نپیمان شماریم. Don't ask us to dissect truth. We are worshippers of the sacred wine, not accountants of wine cups. Wow. Man, I can't top that. I, my, my opinion feels feeble. I don't often feel that way. <laughs> but um, I think it comes down to power. You mentioned that a little bit about that. Um, and that what institutions produce is a collective narcissism. And collective narcissism tends to be masculine in its energy footprint um, around control, um, what I refer to as uh, insertion without permission. So that's everything from rape to colonization is the masculine inserting itself without permission. And, mm-hmm. um, and so I think at its depths, narcissism is a deep fear of being seen. And if you have the power, you can build institutions that control the way you're seen. This is why in a totalitarian regime, the first thing they do is they, they, kidnap, they, they arrest or kill all the artists because the artists are the ones telling the truth about who they are. Mm. Um, I think that uh, another aspect to this, and it goes to, um, the, to, to the Rumi poem, the, the quote you just said, that um, the spirit is the natural state. Um, and in the in the spiritual realm, control is safety, but it's not safety in terms of data or high walls or who has more. It's a different kind of safety. Um, Bell Hook said, "Love liberates," mm-hmm. and that's a, that's a, that's. A, I think that you can build institutions where where it's what I call institutions of negative enumeration. So the U.S. Constitution is very rare in that it's negative enumeration, and it has had, the countries have many failings related to equality, but the negative enumeration the, thou, the, thou, you, that the government cannot do is the protector of natural rights. And it is, to me, the natural right to be free, which is a direct threat, especially to authoritarian theologies, which get all of their value by what I call piece of shit doctrine. By, by dehumanizing the people that are part of the institution itself and venerating people within a power structure. As a Christian, Jesus spoke specifically against that. Um, and But you see it, it is rampant, especially in American Christianity, is a, is a veneration or worship, worship of status. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so all of that leads to fear, ultimately fearing the mystic. I, I had the observation, I don't know when this happened, but at some point, like the, the the Christian Bible became a book of was a book of clues and it became a book of laws. And if it's a book of laws, it has to be enforced. And I have a friend who's a Sufist, and he says the same thing about the Quran and extremist um, you know, fundamentalists in Islam as well. Is they treat it's not a they don't treat it as a book of a book of poetry or a book of clues, they treat it as a book of laws, and that's why they need institutions in order to enforce those laws. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I love how you talked about collective narcissism. And um, I have talked about ripened narcissism. Have you ever heard that term? No. Yeah. So it becomes from the Greek myth, the narcissist, you know, the young, beautiful man falls in love with his own. 
image and and this um, adoration renders him completely unable to move and he ends up um, you know just being stuck there completely mm-hmm. stunted but the Persian version of this myth is that Narcissus dives into the lake to reunite with his beloved unable to swim he risks everything Mm -hmm. and when he drowns two narcissus flowers emerge at the edge of the lake and they're his eyes they're his eyes seeing all of life as a reflection of himself and in their pleasure they emit the most heavenly fragrance Mm -hmm. and this death and reemergence is about how um, as a society, we're basically stunted narcissism. Our narcissism hasn't ripened. We haven't seen ourselves in others. We haven't seen ourselves in everything. And when when we actually do go through that death and rebirth process, it, it transforms us so profoundly that our narcissism, instead of being stunted, it opens into this radiant, glorious love. Yeah. It becomes impossible for us to not see each other, ourselves in each other. And that is what you're talking about, uh, where where things are so relational, so intimate, and uh and you're just you're just being responsible for your beloved. It's it's got so much accountability, right? Yeah. Uh when when uh, you know it's not just you know, oh love me, love me. No, no, I am an accountable lover. I will do what I can to protect the earth, to protect the one vulnerable, to protect every every being that crosses my path. Yeah. And you said it earlier, you know, it's relational, not transactional. And in a conscious relationship. Um, it is a it is two mirrors looking at each other, um, and the and there's a there's a truth within the feminine in particular that is is undeniable. The, so the feminine, the divine feminine, reflects back the shadow of the masculine as an example, and it's not even it's not gender related so much as it is energetic, and so that kind of goes to the second question, which is why why is the feminine and i say feminine both in terms of the gender of woman and, and women the, the people that identify as women being oppressed but feminine more as an energy why is it often the t- the main target of authoritarian theologies why do they go after why do they go after the feminine and the women first do you think hmm. yeah again it is so much about control in my book, A Girl Called Rumi, there is a scene where the um the, these um this there's a gathering and people are talking after a bloody wave of executions that has swept the country. And uh one of the characters says, if you think about it, freedom of thought is a feminine way of governance. Mm-hmm. In that approach, there is no fear of ideas, political or otherwise. A patriarchal society like this can't handle freedom of thought. Just like women, thoughts will have to be controlled for this kind of government to survive. Mm. That's so interesting. Man. Yeah. It it does seem, and I had this, (laughs) I won't get into too many details, but I've been doing Regina, I've been going to a, a, a actually he's a um, 
a neurobiologist and he's got a treatment that sort of rapidly resets your nervous system from trauma. Mm -hmm. And I had this message during the treatment today, which was the last part, which is around being with a weighted blanket and noise suppressing headphones and, and an eye pillow. And it was the further you are from yourself, the further you are from her. But her was capitalized. It wasn't Virginia, even though she, to me, is the divine feminine in the sense of our relationship. But the her was the was the was the, was freedom um, and justice. And and when I'm further away from myself or my capitalized self, my soul, um, I think also again through the lens of Christian history, the the um, whoring of Mary Magdalene is it a great example. And uh, Megan Watterson, if you've read any of her stuff about Mary Magdalene, really talks about the divine feminine through the Christian lens about reclaiming femininity. And I've had another person, Megan um, Chance, um, she was on my podcast last year, and she's a feminist within Christianity as well. And we all kind of see the same thing, which is it was a very intentional strategy to defeminize Christianity. Mm-hmm. AI um, has shown us uh, in an examination of the Apostle Paul's writings, for example, that somebody came back in hundreds of years later and edited his writings to disparage women, essentially. Um, it wasn't, if you look at his stuff that was probably written by him, it's in a, in a different syntax and tone and structure. So that's a, that's a conspiracy, if you will, to defeminize and i think it's as you said you just i think you nailed it it's it's about freedom of thought and if Mm -hmm. you can control the feminine you can control freedom of thought and then you get to keep your power Mm -hmm. Uh, that's rather chilling actually um but it makes sense right so i think a lot of people especially people that listen to this podcast um that are kind of um within that realm of consciousness um they want to know what to do. You know, it's not just enough to know the ideas. Um, they may not be an activist directly like you are or Virginia is, but they at least want to be active in a solution or mm-hmm. in countering or combating um, the things that are a threat to what they believe in. So my last question for you, Ari, is what is the best weapon? And I use that term on purpose. <laughs> um, feel free to modify it to something else. But what is the best weapon against an author- authoritarian theologies? What can someone do to fight back or protect themselves or, or, or fight for justice with against authoritarian theologies? Mm. Um, I would say that fully inhabiting our bodies. And as you were talking about, you were talking about the, uh, the, uh, your want to be closer to her capital, her, which is freedom. Mm-hmm. And, closing keep closing the gap keep closing the gap with whatever means that um is available to us and it usually the means for me and for most activists that that i encounter these days is through joy and healthy relationships with ourselves with others and with the divine cultivating good healthy relationships so so respecting our bodies so we can it's a it's a marathon right we want to just it's it's hard enough to maintain this body now i have to care about the world too right (laughs) so so it's, it's too much to ask in if we're not 
orienting, constantly orienting ourselves to that joy, to that freedom, to savoring life, to savoring pleasant moments. Um, I um, wrote an article a while ago. Uh, it was called When Savoring a Pleasant Moment is a Radical Act. Mm. And uh, this, and I spoke to a lot of neurobiologists and trauma experts. And, um, and I'm actually going to give a TED talk about this based on my own uh, resilience through joy approach, mm. which um, is joy can be a both a radical act of resistance and also a means of healing and sustenance if we keep orienting ourselves to to savoring savoring things like what i said about prayer you know just having our full attention when we take a sip of tea oh thank you beautiful glass vessel of tea you know i'm holding you i'm taking a sip you're you know, nourishing me. Um, I'm, I'm, you know, you don't say those things, but, but just feel them, right. Being right mm-hmm. there with experiences. Yeah, right. And I also dance with refugees. That's one of the things I do as a way of, um, well, dancing was denied to me as a child. And when I came to the U.S. as part of, I came without my parents under extraordinary circumstances. I was an unaccompanied kid. And um, and one of the things that I did, I danced a lot and and it helped me reduce um, PTSD and anxiety and depression. And I didn't know why I was dancing, but it felt good. Now the science is backing that up. And uh, so, so and also dance is such a stigmatized thing, but in the, the, these busy times where we have to through sift through so much info, so much noise, it is so crucial to tap into that stillness and silence. Mm -hmm. We have to cultivate deep listening. And for me, the arts are a form of deep listening. So, and, and dancing, dancing itself is a serenity prayer for me. It's a zek of sorts. Mm -hmm. It invites me to pivot and flow with what I can't control. It reminds me to summon every part of my being to what I must change, not leaving anything small or trivial behind. And it points me toward the stillness from which movements arise and the silence from which music emanates. Wow. Yeah, I think, um, you know, there's this idea of the uh, universal basic income. Yes, Um, very much for that. Yeah. Me too, in a modified way. But I also think that to the question of how do you fight authoritarian theologies is a universal basic level of consciousness. And, <laughs> and that's three things, um, from, in my opinion. One is um, to the awareness that you are not your thoughts and feelings. If you can be a witness to your thoughts and feelings, you cannot be controlled. It's that simple. And this is something that Nelson Mandela learned something that uh, John McCain and uh, Senator McCain learned when he was a POW in Vietnam. Um, Hurricane Carter, who was wrongly incarcerated for 35 years, many, many people that have been in the worst, worst situations point out that they could not control their mind when, when they cannot control you if they can't control your mind. And the only way to control someone's mind is to convince them that they are their thoughts and feelings. 
Um, the second one is to understand the dynamics of the masculine and the feminine. It's the most ancient of beliefs. Um, it is it is the it is the it is the womb of the relationship we have with the divine is the masculine and the feminine. It's what makes us creators as as God or spirit is a creator. But we don't understand it. We we don't really understand um the the relationship that the that the mind is supposed to serve the heart. The king is supposed to serve the queen. Uh and our so- society and our systems are set up that the kings rule and the queens serve, and it's backwards. Um, and then the third one is a critical mind. Um, I don't mean critical mind in the sense of like questioning the news. That that's kind of that's even even more basic. I'm talking about critical mind in that understanding that your I that that what you think you think some was probably a type of influence from another source. And when I coach people or we coach people, one of the things that we do is dig into what they actually believe underneath the social conditioning, because the soul comes with a belief. It comes with a, that's where natural law comes in. It does come with a set of beliefs, but it's been covered up by social conditioning or trauma. Um, And I, I, I think this is that if, we had 10, uh, we raised the level of consciousness in authoritarian situations by 10 to 15%. It would transform those societies because conscious people cannot be controlled. Um, and, uh, and so in the United States, this is just being aware of the influence of religion, Christian, Christianity in particular on our policies, our way of life, on what we consider to be freedom is just be aware of it. I'm not saying you have to fight against it entirely. I have many, many friends that are more conservative Christians that are really wonderful people. It's just be aware of the relationship between Christian nationalism and white supremacy as an example. If you don't know that, you're being manipulated. You're being led around by your nose, um, by your own insecurities and your own fears. And so, yeah, that's my answer. Yeah, that's one of the the uh, one of the blows from after um, Roe v. Wade got overturned. Mm-hmm. Uh, I wrote a piece for Newsweek, and it was about the similarities between uh, what happened in Iran, where there was a uh, guardian council of of these men in black robes deciding everything, mm-hmm. and and the Supreme Court here. That there's they have a Christian agenda. There is no separate. There is no separation of church and state because there's no separation between finances and and uh, um, you know benefits that they can get from from uh, um, from from investing in different uh, yeah. you know types of financial um, uh, in institutions and mm-hmm. and uh, their judgments. Uh, and the same thing with with our governing body is is very much tied to to um, and there's an economic aspect to it. Uh, mm-hmm. The church has always been very uh, wealthy. Mm-hmm. Now the church has transformed. It's not necessarily church, but there's their corporations, their their right. global institutions that are are uh, um, are now the you know they're. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, we have a, we have, I mean, the, the traditional church is, you know, waning and, and 
influence except within evangelicalism it's very strong still but that's that's going to go away too um and there's there you know there's a, there's new religions emerging you know the the religion of consumerism is an example uh the religion of status the, i don't know if you're familiar with the prosperity doctrine which is a a christian in quote air quotes uh um model that really is just materialism or consumerism that the more shit you own the more god has blessed you um, and that's just gross to me. And I'm a, you know, I'm not, I'm a capitalist and I'm, and I, but I, I am a, I'm aware that most of the time what we're doing with our systems is just trying to fill the hole that our soul is supposed to occupy. Exactly. That's, that's what I'm saying. You know, we're, we need to be coming back to, to ourselves and, uh, and you know those, those the holes that need to be filled. There's nothing external that can really fill them, except for good relationships, you know, yeah. healthy relationships. Healthy relationships, but even then, if, you know, if you don't have a healthy relationship with yourself, you will end up in some sort of, you know, that triangle of um, victim, torment, or hero, or rescuer. You you end up there, and that goes around and around and around until you love yourself. Exactly. Love yourself that yeah. will that will be repeated, and then then you look at sort of collective trauma, collective abuse comes from um, groups of people that do not know their own worth have been convinced that they're worthless. Um, again, back to the piece of shit doctrine that that I was referring to. Yeah. And you're absolutely right. Whenever I say relationships, I always mean relationship with oneself, with the yeah. planet and with each other and exactly. the divine. Those exactly. Those things, you know, it's everything is very, very, that's all about mysticism is the intimacy with all those aspects. Um, and as far as that, again, that reparative rehumanization uh, is, is so needed right now. Um, one of the things that I would do with with the uh, uh, kids who were like me, they came to the border on their own without their parents and a lot of them were assaulted a lot you know there these are girls 11 to 17 uh several were pregnant not by choice mm-hmm. and and they have been told their whole this whole journey or maybe all their lives that they're 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 pieces of shit they're nothing they're worthless they're just there for the pleasure of the man and that's it mm-hmm. and um and so i would sit them in a circle and we i would just look at them and i would say to eres amada to eres preciosa to eres digna you are worthy you are precious you are beautiful you are important don't let anyone tell you anything different and i would say that over and over again looking at each girl and until we're all crying uh, until every girl had heard that yes there's a ted talk that she the the therapist talks she's british and she she says the power of the phrase i am worthy and repeating it over and over again um and yeah, I could, I could, I could talk, keep talking to you, but in the spirit of, um, you know, the the format, um, maybe we'll do this again. But I will link to your book and your website and everything in the show notes, and and obviously promote this on social. But what can listeners do to support you, Ari, in your work? What's the best thing they can do to support you? Ah, oh, thank you. Well, the um, yeah, my book, my oracle cards. Uh, I have a number of um, resilience through joy workshops that I do. 
but also I have something super fun that I hope everyone does and it stands for freedom and uh and I have that on my website and people from seven continents even Antarctica are are uh, joining in the dance for freedom to bring attention to the Iranians and their struggles right now uh, against the theocratic uh, fundamentalist regime, but also, you know, just freeing your own body, bringing our healing to our own self and and have a sense of expression. Awesome. Thank you so much. This was really, really insightful. And you thank you for all your wisdom and presence. Thank you. Thank you, Justin.